Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Thank you for joining us on Easy's Community Focus, where we look at the issues that matter in South Florida and the people and organizations that are making a difference. Well, COVID-19, of course, has been an ongoing issue since at least March when it really started to spread, and even more so since June when we started seeing these spikes in numbers once Memorial Day passed and they started reducing the restrictions and the virus mutated and became more contagious. And Florida is the hot spot. It's the epicenter of the outbreak right now. And now what we're facing is the beginning of a school year where we have really no idea what's going to happen. So I'm so happy to welcome back, and it's been far too long, Carla Hernandez-Matz, the president of United Teachers of Dade. Thank you for talking to us. Hello, my friend. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's always a pleasure to be with you and your listening audience, and of course, to inform the community on important matters that are happening. And I know there are very important matters right now. One of the things that happened just this past week, the Florida Education Association filed a lawsuit against the governor, Commissioner Richard Corcoran, the Florida Department of Education, the Florida State Board of Education, and Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Jimenez over this push to reopen schools. And next week, I am going to talk to the president of the Florida Education Association, so we don't have to go into extreme detail, but if you want to give us a little overview of why they felt that was necessary. Absolutely. It's a monumental lawsuit. It's uh, the first of its kind here in the state of Florida, but it is certainly, um, you know, apropos because of the situation that we're in. Uh, You know, unfortunately, we've seen poor leadership in a lot of circumstances where we've seen, uh, you know, a political agenda being played as opposed to an agenda that cares about people and the well-being of the community. So for the past couple of weeks and days at the national level and at the state level, we've seen a concerted effort to push and pressure school districts to open five days a week brick and mortar. And in a situation like ours in Miami-Dade, which, as you said earlier, is the epicenter of the nation in COVID cases, it is not only irrational, but irresponsible to think that we are anywhere close to being in the conditions that are adequate for us to reopen our school system. And so we had to take a bold stance. And, you know, we're grateful that the Florida Education Association, with the support of the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers, decided to place this lawsuit to say, absolutely not. Uh, We need to make sure that the conditions are right in communities and that the local control is given back to the school districts. We need school districts to have the data to know what they're working with, the conditions that they will be working under in order to make informed decisions about how to do it and how to do it properly. Unfortunately for us, because restrictions were loosened 
too early and ordinances were not put in place that mandated people to behave in certain ways to curb or to lessen this curve. We're now in the situation where we are the hot spot of the country. And so, you know, we have to do what's right by our community. Yeah, I mean, we now have in the state of Florida over 400,000 cases of COVID-19. And you can say, okay, well, but how many are recovered? Unfortunately, a good three quarters of those are active cases. In Miami-Dade County, we are now reaching the 100,000 mark. Miami-Dade is, of the state, the epicenter. So let's take a look back toward the end of last school year when they first closed the schools and went to distance learning. Obviously, everyone finished the year. The seniors graduated. How did it work from the viewpoint of the school system? Well, our school system actually was able to pivot on a dime fairly quickly and efficiently considering the pandemic that we were facing you know, through a lot of collaboration, not only with the union, us, uh, you know, but with other entities, we really wanted to make sure that we provided as much support to students and to educators and their families, you know, as much support that we could provide. Uh, but but we had our ups and downs, and it was a learning uh, opportunity for us because uh, since we've done it uh, since March, we've learned what worked, we've learned what didn't work. Uh, we're also very real in our situation, and we know that this is going to have a devastating effect in some communities because of the inequalities that already exist in our community. And uh, there is going to be a learning gap. I'm calling it the COVID gap. Mm. You know, we used to talk before about the summer slide. This is much more severe than the summer slide. This COVID gap is something that is going to impact uh, learning gains of students, of students with disabilities, of the children that speak different languages, our English language learners, um, of course, communities of color uh, and impoverished communities. But these are all things that once our school system is back in face-to-face mode and we're able to, to teach in, you know, and, and use the pedagogy that we were trained uh, to do, um, and interact with our students in the way that we know that is best, we'll be able to assess our students, evaluate them, see what those needs are, and mitigate through, uh, you know, different um, instructional methods to make sure that, that we're bringing those children up. The thing is that we cannot mitigate loss of life. And, you know, that's what I think a lot of policymakers and politicians are not grasping uh, you know, that this is something that is going to really be devastating to so many communities. And for them to say in blanket statements, we are going to cut funding from you if you do not open your schools. Um, you must reopen your schools, not considering the circumstances that this community are existing in at the moment uh, is very irresponsible. Yeah. And, um, you know. We have to push back on that. If anything, I would think adding funding would be necessary. You know, there are so many challenges on both sides. You know, one of the arguments I hear in favor of brick and mortar is for the parents who have gone back to work, are fortunate enough to be working again. Well, now what do they do with the kids if the kids are going to stay home? So they need a brick and mortar. And then you have the flip side, of course, which is everyone's at risk if they are spending time together in school. How do you keep a six-foot distance? Um, Teachers, I understand a third of teachers are in a high-risk category, either because of age or an underlying illness. So where do you even start to find a place? Yeah, it's very complex, um, you know, but I think... 
uh, that we have to unpack that. And that's part of what we need to do. Have these dialogues, these conversations so that everybody understands that we see all points of view. You know, I, ha- I feel like it's, it's imperative that I let our audience know that teachers want to be back in school. I mean, teaching online virtually is uh, is very taxing. I mean, the, the, the amount of time of planning because we're used to being in person, having presential classes, uh, you know, makes it very difficult to transition to a method that we've never used before or in this manner. And so, you know, it's very taxing on teachers. Teachers understand the social-emotional learning needs that students have and that part of that or a cornerstone of that is the interaction that they have with them in person. But here's the thing, and and you mentioned it, you know, that we went into a bubble when uh, schools closed, you know, mid-March. When we closed in mid-March, we put our children in these protective bubbles to make sure that they were okay. We sent them home. They've been with their parents. Um, right now in Miami-Dade, with the number of cases on the rise as they are right now, this surge, uh, it's ludicrous to think that anybody in their right mind would want to burst that bubble, uh, you know, take their children out of that protection that they've had for the last four or five months uh, and expose them to the dangers of coronavirus. Um, we know that um, children learn best when they are in school with their teachers. We know that they are going to be... Um, economic losses because, you know, some parents um, have to go back to work or they're essential workers. Um, but this is why we need government that, that leads the way um, and that not that tries to find excuses. I mean, even when you hear government officials that say you must reopen, but they tell you that they do that with no guidance. Right. They're not following the CC guidelines. They're not telling you, here's a plan, here is an outline of some things that you might want to do. Oh, and by the way, we're going to give you the funding that you need so that you have the plexiglass barriers to create the social distancing. We're going to make sure that you have testing, that you have contact tracing, um, that you have the hygiene that is needed uh, to be impeccable, you know, and all the disinfectants and everything else that we're going to need, including masks to make sure that everyone's safe. But we're not hearing that from any uh, any of our leaders. What we hear them is almost sitting, you're standing on a bully pulpit, uh, telling us, you know, like petulant children, you must reopen without giving us any of the resources, any of uh, the support that we need in order to make well-informed, adequate decisions for the safety and well-being of our community. Even if you had the funding for every one of those things that you just mentioned, okay, the plexiglass, which believe it or not, I had seen pictures of these, you know, three-sided plexiglass coverings for the desks, and a friend of mine saw it and said, oh, guess what? There's a shortage of plexiglass right now. <laughs> like, okay, yep. it's That's 2020. Good, yep. What else would we expect? So even if you had the funding and the time to put a plexiglass barrier on each and every school desk— even if you had the funding then to supply every child with a mask every single day and you had the thermometers for every child to take their temperature every single day and you could follow through. I I mean, it would take so much money that we don't have, number one, but then where's the space to distance the kids? What about kids who are uncomfortable in a mask for eight hours in a day? Right. Who's going to clean those plexiglass barriers and make sure that they're safe every day? 
what about right. meal preparation? What's going to happen with school lunches? And then what happens if one teacher gets sick? Then does everyone in their class have to be quarantined for two weeks and now they miss two right. weeks of school? So these are everything leads to another thing, which leads to another thing. And it's so complicated. And like you say, they've given you no guidance. Has anyone asked, you know, how do you see this working? Has anyone said to the mayor or to the governor, how do you actually literally day by day, minute by minute, see this working? Well, you know, we've tried to talk to uh, officials um, about data, right? Data is extremely important. Uh, the American Federation of Teachers actually put out about two months ago a reopening plan for the entire nation. And in that plan, uh, you know, it was very prescriptive in the sense that, you know, we needed to have a consistent 14-day decline. You know, the positivity rate needs to be below 10%, you know, and statistics of that nature. Um, obviously, none of which we have currently in South Florida. But, um, you know, what we're seeing is that people don't want to listen to science, but instead they're trying to focus on science fiction. And we can't live in that method. We can't live through with that model. We need real data points. We need to be able to make sure that the science that we're looking at is, uh, is making sense so that we can make informed decisions on what we're trying to do. You know, um, here in Miami-Dade, just this week, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know something that's extremely sad for us at United Teachers of Dade, we just found out that two teachers passed away from mm. two different schools, uh, from two of our public schools. This is during a quarantine period where we have not been in our schools, where things have remained closed and our schools aren't reopened. So, you know, here are two teachers that still had the rest of their life in front of them with family members. We're mourning the loss of our colleagues. Um, and this is in a situation where we have technically been under the protection that we need in order to stay safe. If our schools reopen, it is going to be havoc. It is going to be detrimental to the community. We'll see the COVID cases spike in a way that we haven't even talked about in this country. Um, because even in New York, when they were at their high point, we know that all those schools were closed at that moment. Uh, so it is just really ludicrous to think that we should reopen at a time right now when none of the conditions are optimal or even close to being right for that to be done safely. Right. Now, one of the compromises that I've heard brought up is to have the kids who want to be in brick and mortar go and those who want to stay home or whose parents want to keep them home stay home and do the classes streaming so the teachers don't have to do the extra work of double teaching and those who stay home can keep up. Is that a reasonable option? We actually have a very robust plan on how to reopen when the time is right. Uh, our school district had a work group with about 40 different professionals, industry experts, um, where we talked about you know, how to do this in a safe manner that was reasonable and gave many options to, you know, our diverse community because our community with almost 400 school sites needs options in order to make good decisions for whatever their conditions are. And we had options of only virtual, 
options of only face-to-face and a hybrid option that was a combination of both, a little bit of face-to-face and a little bit of virtual teaching. So we're ready and we've talked about those things, but that only occurs in a phase two. And right now, because we're nowhere near a phase two, because the leaders did not take the precautionary measures that they were expected to take to keep their community safe, we've seen this increase. And now we've degraded. You know, we are in a uh, phase one that continues to deteriorate every single day. And, um, you know, now we don't even have that option anymore because we know that with these conditions, we cannot keep children safe. We cannot keep families safe. Uh, but when we are ready, when things are better, when we can go back to school, we do want to be able to provide communities with options. We want to be able to do it in a safe way. We want to be able to open little by little so that families feel secure in the, the, the health and well-being of their children, um, but that we also do it without creating more spikes in these cases and keeping our community safe. Right. And also, we are seeing more children who are getting the disease uh, COVID-19, whereas originally it was mostly seniors, and that may be attributed to the mutation. I don't know. I spoke to the president of the American Medical Association last week, and, and yes, there are cases with children. There's also concern that children who don't show symptoms may be carriers and then could right. bring it back to their families, and then their parents or siblings could be ill. Um, One of the things that's come up is if you leave it as a strictly online learning, uh, you mentioned that it really affects the worst is the poor families, those from um, underserved neighborhoods. How do you supply them with the computers and computer internet service that they need? And what happens with those meals that they're accustomed to getting every day? That's a great question. Um, our, our district has been very forward-thinking, and even throughout the summertime, while our schools have technically been closed because, you know, our summer schools are not open um, for face-to-face interaction, we have kept 50 school sites open uh, where we continue to give breakfast and lunch to communities to make sure that um, those families that are suffering from food insecurity don't have that additional worry and burden Uh, that they have to face. We're trying to make sure that everybody in the community is protected during this time. We also know that there are technical difficulties because of the technological divides that exist within our community. And so um, the district has given out more than, I believe, 100,000 devices, laptops, iPads, uh, even phones as hotspots. So they've been working with different uh, internet companies to make sure that these uh, devices that they give out, that if they need hotspots in certain communities, that they're access to that so that children can have access to working remotely and working online um, with the devices that our public schools are providing for our children. Okay. When is school supposed to start according to the calendar? August 24th is supposed to be the first day of school. So we're one month away, and it's not looking very hopeful at this point for brick-and-mortar opening. What will you do? When will you make a decision about what you're going to do and how things will be managed? Well, 
I've already made a decision. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to send my kids to school under these conditions. Um, But I believe that the superintendent is trying to work with our um, mayor, uh, our county mayor. Um, You know, it's going to be on him on the data to make that call. I don't foresee that, you know, the conditions are going to be adequate. And my message to parents and to educators has been to prepare for virtual learning and virtual teaching. Uh, You know, we have to make the best of this situation at this particular time. And then when the time is right, we will be able to reopen. But right now, uh, we cannot mitigate the loss of life uh, of a colleague, of a student, of more people in our community. And so we have to prepare to just stay at home, stay safe, and continue to do our best with virtual teaching until we are in uh, in a better place. Okay, so you are going to open schooling, but not necessarily brick-and-mortar schools, according to schedule. Yep. Okay. That is correct. Okay. And yes. teachers, I'm sure, I mean, teachers, parents will be receiving notices about what's going to be happening and when. Yes. They will be receiving that information from the school district. Okay, great. I have to ask you, I have seen some social media posts about the actual curriculum of schools where the president is saying that it's indoctrination and saying we need to change the curriculum. Have you seen that, and what is your response to that? You know, I think it is uh, interesting that this is what the federal government is trying to almost brainwash people into thinking, which is exactly what they're accusing us of doing. Uh, You know, we teach on facts. We teach on history. We teach math. Math is math. Reading is reading. Um, you know, uh, we we have always had a curriculum where we teach children to be critical thinkers, um, and that's what we want them to be, critical thinkers, so that they can be, uh, you know, engaged community uh, activists or just, just community members when they grow up. Um, but um, that is not the case for our Miami-Dade County Public Schools or any public school system that, you know, that I've uh, seen. Uh, we just want uh, to be able to teach our children and give them the best public education that they can get. Um, and, and, and we just need funding. We need funding to be able to do that for all of our communities. Can the federal government determine what goes into the curriculum? I don't believe that they should have uh, the, the, the power to do that. All of our decisions have always been based on, you know, local control. Our school boards, the superintendent, you know, we've always made local decisions, um, you know, on what the curriculum is that we teach. For example, uh, just because it's on the top of my head, right now, before school finished, May is when we celebrate Haitian heritage, Haitian culture, Haitian flag day. Uh, I'm sure that other districts don't necessarily make, uh, you know, a big to-do about the Haitian culture because in their communities they may not have such a large Haitian population like there is in Miami-Dade. And so, you know, I believe that that should always be a local control. We have standards already that we have to uh, make sure are implemented and embedded in the curriculum that we have. Uh, Right now, all those standards have been state-mandated. And so, you know, those are the standards that we teach in our classroom to make sure that our children are ready to be successful um, and, and learn the academics that they need to learn in order to graduate and, and continue on with their life. 
Okay. We have primary elections coming up on August 18th. Are there any issues that are of particular interest to Miami-Dade County schools? All elections are extremely important. And, you know, I'm going to put the plug in here to make sure that people uh, register to vote from home. We're in a pandemic. We don't want you to expose yourselves. Uh, so, you know, go, to, you know, go, go online to whatever your county government elections office is and make sure you register and apply to vote from home. Um, we have school board elections, and it's a, it's a unique opportunity because we have three open seats. In my lifetime, Ellen, it has never happened. Wow. And so we want to make sure that we get people that care about the well-being of our community. You know, we serve over 350,000 kids on a daily basis. And, you know, we need folks that, you know, really put education as a top priority. And so we want you to vote for school board members. But, you know, they are usually on the bottom of the ticket. So don't get tired when you get halfway through. <laughs> Finish the ballot. Right. <laughs> Finish right. the ballot. Go all the way down. Uh, and, of course, make sure that you do your research on every single candidate and know what their platforms are, know what they, what, you know, how they feel about public education and make sure that they're supporting the community services. Do you have information about that on your website at utd.org? Yes, ma'am. We have it at utd.org. You'll find, uh, you know, information on the candidates that we believe are supporting public education, what their platforms are. You can learn more about them there, utd.org. And, of course, you can always follow us on our social media, United Teachers of Dade. We're very active on there, and we're always trying to put interesting and engaging uh, commentaries and posts so that we can uh, keep our community informed. And if for some reason the head of a tech company is listening and says, oh, I have another 100,000 laptops I'd like to donate, how would they get in contact and who would they contact? Well, um, they could definitely always reach out to us directly, uh, to United Teachers of Dade. Our number is 305-854-0220. That's 305-854-0220. Um, but we would be happy to get them connected also with the district and see how they could help at an even grander scale. Okay. Carla Hernandez-Matz, president of United Teachers of Day, thank you for such a coherent explanation of what's going on. I know there's there's so much misinformation. Social media makes things even more complicated for people to know what is fact and what is not. There are people intentionally uh, putting things out that are just not true. So I appreciate hearing it from someone who is in the middle of it and at the top of it. <laughs> and um, I wish you luck. Please keep me up to date, but let's let our you know parents know that in Miami-Dade County, school will begin on August 24th. At the minimum, it will be virtual. In any kind of best-case scenario, if they suddenly come up with a vaccine, which is not likely to happen in the next four weeks, but at the minimum, you will have virtual learning and school will start on August 24th. Um, if any parents have questions, where should they turn? If they have any questions or they want more information, maybe they want a device because their laptops uh, are not working up to par, uh, they can call 305-995-3000. That is the district information hotline, 995 
of course, United Teachers of Data is also here to serve and help the community in any way. And if we need to make that connection for you, we'll be happy to do that as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for representing our teachers and our students and the entire concept of outstanding education in Miami-Dade County. Carla Hernandez-Matz, again, president of United Teachers of Dade. I wish you the best. Thank you, Ellen. Wish you the best as well. And that does it for Easy's Community Focus this week. I'm Ellen Jaffe. If you have questions about the program or would like to suggest a topic, you can email me at ellen at easy93.com. Thank you for listening. Wash your hands and join us again next Sunday at 6.50 for a new edition of Easy's Community Focus. Wishing you a safe, healthy, and happy Sunday.